0: You're listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: Kindness is a universal language. Everybody understands it. It is love in action. Whenever you perform an act of kindness you are essentially performing an act
2: of, of love. One of the most important things is if you think someone is suicidal you have to ask the question and it's a very difficult question to ask but you have to ask it and you have to come right and ask you can't ask someone if they're thinking about hurting themselves because to someone who is suicidal, they don't think of it as hurting themselves. So you have to come right out and ask the question, are you thinking about killing yourself or taking your life? Because a lot of times they're just waiting for somebody to ask that question.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Main Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect.
3: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 79, Emotional Intelligence, airing for the first time on March 17, 2013. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry reminds us that what is essential is invisible to the eye. Michael Chase, best-selling author and founder of the Kindness Center, and Sandra Fisher, suicide prevention advocate and mother, talk to us about emotional essentials on this week's show. Have you had your heart broken? Me too. I doubt that there's a human alive who can claim differently. We who choose to love are choosing to make ourselves vulnerable to heartbreak, even as we are opening ourselves to joy. The joy that comes from loving is due in part to knowing that we are connected to all others who have chosen to love. As philosopher Martin Buber wrote, the world is not comprehensible, but it is embraceable through the embracing of one of its beings. Buber described the difference between an I-thou and an I-it relationship. When we see another person as an it object, we are unable to recognize that person's humanity. We keep him at a distance. When we embrace that person as a thou or a you, we are better able to understand our commonality. As a doctor and a human, I'm highly aware of my vulnerability. I hear my patients' stories, and from them, I hear my story. I feel my heartbreak even as I feel their hearts break. I also feel their joy. Each week, I share some of this joy and this heartbreak with listeners of our radio show. Sitting with one of this week's guests, A mother whose college-aged son committed suicide eight years ago caused me to feel intensely vulnerable. My own son is currently a college student. I love him as fiercely as any mother might. I know that by loving him, by loving anyone, I put myself at risk for loss. Yet, I choose to embrace him. I choose to embrace the mother who shares her story and know her as I, thou, Rather than believe that her story is unique to her and could never become my story, I choose to embrace Michael Chase of the Kindness Center. I invite you to join me in this embracing. Thank you for joining us this week. Compassion is good for health. Studies have long demonstrated the impact of stress on the body. It can initiate or worsen illnesses, including heart disease, depression, and countless others. Often, stress is caused by changes in circumstances, such as moving or divorce. It can also be created by strained relationships occurring when people of all ages don't see eye to eye. Because it isn't always possible to avoid stressful situations, we must develop appropriate coping mechanisms. By cultivating compassion, we are promoting the ultimate exercise for heart health. If you'd like to explore cultivating compassion, give me a call at the Body Architect, 207 774 2196. I look forward to seeing you. I've always been a big um, proponent of love and compassion, which is an interesting thing to be a proponent of as a doctor in the world. It's not necessarily something you think about as being a healing modality. But I I do believe that this is one of the things that we all could benefit from, whether it's being more loving and compassionate towards ourselves or towards other people. And I know that Michael J. Chase, the man who's sitting across from me in the studio today, is of the same mind. So when I read his book, Am I Being Kind, And I read the following, the pathway to happiness really is that simple. No pills, no therapy, no looking into the mirror and repeating affirmations for a lifetime. All we need to do is be kind. I knew that there was a kindred spirit and I wanted to bring him into the studio. So thank you for being with us today.
1: Thank you, Dr. Lisa.
3: And you are the founder of The Kindness Center, best-selling author of Am I Being Kind? And you have a book coming out this spring. But this wasn't how you saw your life going.
1: No, this, w- this was not the, uh, the original path that I had chosen. Um, for, for 16 years, I was a professional photographer. And uh, it's something that I, I loved very much and was blessed with, uh, with a lot of success from having my own photography studio. Um, but despite having all that success and having all of the things that people said would make me happy, such as a, a nice home and the, the cars and the money and all the things that we're, we're told, if you have this you'll be truly happy and you'll your life will work. Well, I had all of those things and I was still unhappy. So this had me on a a very uh, deep path, I'd almost call it a obsession uh, in the you know, in the world of personal and spiritual development trying to discover, you know, what is it that that truly makes us happy in life? And um, and then it was 5 years ago that I had that that epiphany, made that discovery that that kindness um, was it was at least for me. It's what eliminated my uh, my negative behavior, my negative thinking, um, some of my depression. It just melted it all away, and it became my method for uh, for finding true happiness in my life. It's important for people
3: who are listening to know that you you choose kindness. You have said that you lived a life of unkindness. You, as a younger child, you actually had every reason not to go down the path of kindness because sometimes it's easy to say, "Oh, I'm going to be kind if your life is so good, but your life wasn't always so good. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, that's um, that's all part of the journey. and and there there was a time that I was in that victim mentality. And when you, when you come from a, a difficult background, in my case, it was an a unkind childhood. At least my, my father's side of the, the family. I have the world's most amazing mother. She's like oh, one of my best friends in life. Um, but my father's side of the family, uh, a generational pattern of alcohol, a lot of violence, um, just vicious behavior. And that was passed on from great-grandfather to uh, my, uh, my grandfather, to my dad, and then to me. Um, so I, um, I had to make a choice. You know, I had to be the one to break that pattern. And it, and it took me, well, you know, I was 37 years old when I first made this discovery. I'm 43 now. So um, yeah, it's, it's been a heck of a ride.
3: Part of the reason you needed to do this was because you had your own son, Alex, who I believe is now...
1: He's 22 now. 22. I was going <laughs> to say in college, because this is the
3: last I read right. in the book, but it sounds like he might be out of college now.
1: He's in his last year of college right now, yeah.
3: But you had to make a decision that you know whatever had happened generationally was going to stop and you were going to change it. How difficult was that?
1: The, I think the, uh, the big moment, the defining moment for me was in the year 2000 um my uh, my father who you know we had a, a very a, a in the later years our relationship changed, but throughout most of our most of the you know the years we really struggled um, and uh, and I know you know I can look back and I can have compassion now because I can see that his behavior and any unkindness toward me, it was just built up anger, resentment toward my grandfather, the things that he had done to him um, but in the year 2000, uh, my, uh, my father committed suicide, and that, that event was related to how my grandfather had treated him. And, and so I started to look at all of that and, and made a decision for, you know, it, it took me about six months after my dad's death to dig out of a, a very deep depression. But then I, I found myself at his gravesite right before Christmas, and I said, "I promise you, Dad." I said, "This is it. It ends here." I said, I will not pass this on to my son. And somehow, some way, I'm even going to help other people. Um, and, and I didn't really know what that meant. I mean, I, I barely graduated high school. I picked up a camera and then just went from there. And I thought that would be my life. No degree in psychology or, or anything like that. But just from that point on, I had a burning desire to, to not only um, fix my own life, but to, but to, to help other people someday.
3: You talk about this in the book, this idea that, for a long time, um, not being a— well, I guess it was only being a high school graduate was something that you would be down on yourself for. But then you came to a place where you said, hey, I'm only a high school graduate, and look how much I've been able to accomplish, or look what I've been able to do in my life. That was an interesting turnaround and important, I think.
1: Yeah, you know, that's one of the things that you start to learn with this path of kindness, is to be kind to yourself. And, and look at these things like, you know, I, I'm proud of it. I'm proud of the fact that, and there's a fun, funny example my, uh, my wife, who is um, just the most amazing, supportive woman, I, I just I could do a whole radio show about her, how great she is. And I was on my way to, uh, to Washington, D.C. a few months back to give a very big, huge presentation. And I was nervous, and she's in the car driving me to the airport, and, and she said, Can you believe that you're going to this? enormous thing and you're given a presentation and you've written two books now. And and I said, I said, no. I said, it's it's amazing. I know. I can't believe it. She said, no, I'm serious. She said, you barely graduated from high school. I like okay, well, thanks. And she's, you know, she's playing with me. It's like, thanks, honey. I, I, I recall. I remember. And she's still, and she's grinning. And, and she, said, she said, honestly, they said, this is Hay House Publishing putting on this event. Don't they do background checks on people? You know, and so it's become this this ongoing joke, and it's fun now. And people will ask me; they'll say, "How did you do it? You know, how how did you go from having really no experience as as a as a speaker um, or as an author, and then all of a sudden you're on some of the biggest stages in the world?" And the the first thing that I tell people is that it comes down to that that wonderful quote by Ralph Waldo Emerson: "Once you make a decision, the universe conspires to make it happen." And I had decided when I closed the, the doors of my photography studio, I didn't say, well, maybe it'll work out. Maybe I can do it. there was no just there was only one way this would work for me is, is I had to decide 100 percent with all my heart and just keep on keeping on no matter what. And, and there were some obstacles, no doubt. But the second thing that I tell people is that it's not about how it's about why. And for me, it's always been about the why. Why am I doing this? And I think when the why overpowers the how, then you you can't fail. And f- and for me, it was it was personal. This mission of kindness was something that you know because of my family history and everything that I had experienced. Failure was was not an option. And so I just I knew that I would just I would continue on this path and uh, and that it, it would work out exactly the way uh, that I had hoped it would.
3: In the book, you tell this. The story about—I think it was dressing up for Halloween—and you had a gun as part of your costume. You had—I think this was a night that you had written a note, a suicide note—and you had gone around and you were talking to various people to say goodbye, even though they didn't necessarily realize it.
1: Yeah, that um, was—that was probably if I hit rock bottom in life at any point, that that was it. Uh, I was in my uh, my mid twenties. still very angry, resentful, just living with a, um, a lot of bitterness toward my childhood, and I just couldn't get past it. Um, my, my relationships were falling apart. Um, I just had nothing, I felt, nothing to, to live for, um, other than I had this beautiful little boy, but I felt that I, if I was in the world, then I would you know, pass on this disease of unkindness from my family. And so, yeah, a very dark, dreary Halloween night. I, I got dressed up, um, you know, I was all in black, painted my face white, um, you know, just I looked like a complete freak. And then I, I bought a toy plastic gun that I tucked into my belt. And I went out with a bunch of friends that night and, you know, did the whole stupid bar scene thing. And uh, But I my whole plan was to basically just... Go out with my friends, and I even visited some other people that day. And it was my secret way of saying goodbye, um, because I was planning on going to my apartment that night and ending my life. And so I left the bar um, a little before midnight, and they were all going up to uh, check out Stephen King's house. You know, great night on Halloween to, <laughs> and uh, and so uh, I started walking home, and I'm um, just walking down Main Street when all of a sudden. Uh, I uh, I see blue lights, and I, s- I hear the sound of a police car roaring straight at me. and uh, And he locks it up in the middle of the road, jumps out, puts his hand on his gun, and uh, and he starts yelling. He says, Put the gun down now. And at first, I didn't know what he was talking about. i was I was thinking about the note that I was going to write and things I would say to my dad and um, and I was just in this complete fog. And he just kept saying it, put the gun down. And then I, I finally looked down and I realized I had that plastic gun in my hand. And my first thought was to uh, lift my arm up and just end it right here, make him, make him shoot you. And this whole dramatic thing started to unfold and it was just a matter of, I don't know, it could have been a, a minute and a half, couple minutes, it felt like forever, of this intense stare down between me and this, and this police officer. Um, but as the seconds went by, he, he just started to look at me with more and more compassion and understanding, and I was seeing something in his eyes that I rarely experienced. It was just this, this tenderness, like he really cared about me. Um, and that, that triggered a flashback and a promise that I had made to my mom. And I was standing there, I remembered that I had told my mom I will never end up like my great grandfather, my grandfather, my dad—all the messiness. I would be a good, you know, good person, good husband, all that someday. And I was breaking that promise. And, you know, that thought, of course, and thinking about my little boy, um, I just—I dropped the gun, and. Uh, found myself being smashed face-first into a brick wall, left a really cool white imprint of my face on the wall. I drove through, through downtown Bangor for a couple of days telling my friends, hey, check that out. That's my face on the wall. <laughs> but after that experience, I, I knew that I had to make some changes. Um, and it wasn't that I had gotten on this this deep spiritual path after that, but I, I knew that, okay, something has to change. And the first thing that I began to work toward was, um, was forgiving my father, um, just at least considering it. And it And, uh, yeah, things started to change in small ways at that time.
3: And part of it, if I remember correctly, was that you actually came to a place of understanding that if you asked by putting your arm up and pointing a gun at the policeman, if you asked him to end your life, then you would be changing his life for the worse. You would be causing him to shoot somebody, which would just cause irreparable damage to his own Psyche and his own emotions.
1: Absolutely, that 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 was another thing that that popped into my mind that night. I mean, here was this, uh, I mean, and he could have, he could have been some you know renegade cop and just put me down right then and there. But he, but he, you know, he had that that like I said, that look of compassion and care in his eyes, and and yeah, and I and I realized that as well. Had had he had he shot me? I mean. Some stupid kid with a plastic gun, it, who knows what that would have done to his life and how it would have affected him. Um, so we, sometimes we just don't realize how, how powerful our choices are. Those, those small, tiny epiphanies and decisions, that, I mean, they, they have a, a profound ripple effect. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm forever grateful for, uh, for just those kind eyes on that night that, that probably saved my life.
3: That, for me, I think is one of the two really compelling parts of this, that you would, in this moment of significant stress and uh, at a time in your life when you were thinking, okay, this is all going to be over soon anyway, you're able to think about somebody else. So that's, that's one thing that I think just captured my attention. But the other part is just this capacity for change. And this is something that we talk about on this show all the time, is that people always have the capacity to change. Your your father actually became a loving grandfather to your son for a short period of time before he ended his own life. He changed.
1: He did. Uh, my my dad did a lot of work, you know, to try to um, just get on a, a happier, healthier path. Um, you know, he uh, many years back he, he gave up drinking, um, and uh, and he also started to seek out therapy. You know, and he tried a, a variety of different medications. Uh, those. Those weren't working for him. Those actually created more struggles, and so he he was searching endlessly. And but and it and it did put him on a, a, a healthier path, so that he at least became, um, you know, in many ways. I, I look at my relate my my father's relationship with my son. I mean, that was that was my dad's way of of healing some of his pain from. My relationship with him, and at first it hurt because I saw all this love and attention being going, to, you know, toward my son, and I was like, "Why didn't I get that when I was a little boy?" And but then I started to see it in a different way, and it was it was just it was beautiful to witness it. It was I mean, it would bring tears to my eyes. when I when I had that understanding of, like I said, what my you know grandfather was like, my great grandfather was like, um, this was a beautiful thing for my dad, and, uh, and I'll be forever grateful. And and having my son is probably one of the things also that that began to heal our relationship somewhat.
3: We'll return to our interview in a moment. We and the Doctor Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast hope that our listeners enjoy their own work lives to the same extent we do, and fully embrace every day. As a physician and small business owner, I rely on Marcy Booth from Booth, Maine, to help me with my own business and to
4: help me live my own life fully. Here are a few thoughts from Marcy. Throughout my career, I've worked with countless small business owners and entrepreneurs who have invested so much time in work that very little time was left over to enjoy life, to save time with family or friends, and doing things other than work that revives them. It's a common application to the old adage, if you want something done right, you've got to do it yourself. But what if doing it yourself means not doing it correctly? What if spending all that time at work, keeping all the balls in the air, zaps your mental energy so much that you're not able to enjoy your life outside of work? When I run into people who suffer from that I've got to do it myself syndrome, I tell them stop. Take a look at the parts of your business you enjoy working on, you're good at, and create value. Then look at the duties that are on the need to get them done list and think, can I outsource these? Chances are the answer will be yes, and there are a number of people out there who specialize in helping small businesses win. When you outsource, you give yourself the gift of time, time that can be savored doing more of what matters to you personally. When this happens, you'll be surprised at the positive impact it will have on your business and your mental health. For more insight, contact us at boothmain.com.
0: This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of REMAX Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With REMAX Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com.
3: We've talked about the reasons why you might not have become kind the unkindness in your life. And we've talked about some of the tr- the turning points that cause you to become kind. Now tell me what it is that you do with the Kindness Center. And what are some of the um, things that you've done to promote the idea of kindness in this world?
1: It's, it's interesting, you know, the, the Kindness Center. People, first of all, they think, kindness center where that must be nestled in the mountains surrounded by unicorns and rainbows and pixie dust and <laughs> it sounds like a magical place you know um, but it, and and we did originally think okay it will be a, a physical location someday and, and, and it still may if the right opportunity comes along then I would love to have a, a place where people could come but it um, it quickly turned into a, a mobile center. Where I started to take this this idea of um, of creating a kinder world and, and putting it in, in a vehicle of doing large scale random acts of kindness events, and we've taken them all over the country. Um, started the first one was right here in Portland, called 24 Hours of Kindness, and it's this marathon, 24 hour marathon of just. Performing random acts of kindness with with no sleep, no breaks, just doing good things for other people. Uh, last summer, I, I did this this event in uh, in New York City. I did the 24 hours there, and you want to talk about you? Know, there's a difference between Portland, Maine, and New York City. Let me just tell you, you don't wear your Red Sox hat there, okay? If you want to perform acts of kindness, <laughs> it, but it was amazing. The people the people were really wonderful, actually. Um, and so we've done 3,000 miles of kindness, a cross-country road trip, so all these events became a, a big part of, um, of sharing the message of kindness. Uh, but the, the primary thing that I do now is, is I speak. Um, I speak to people all over the world now. I've been so blessed um, to, to be able to travel, to share, to share this. And the, the wonderful thing is that kindness is a universal language. You know, it makes no difference whether it's, I'm speaking to a, a group of middle school students, which I do. I speak to thousands of students every year using kindness as a as a as um, an alternative to anti-bullying. So we bring something positive. Here's what you can do instead of what not to do. It's been extremely effective. So whether I'm speaking to middle school kids or a group in corporate America, everybody understands it. I mean, it's it's it, it doesn't step on any toes. It doesn't offend. It doesn't you know, because some people, you know I speak to Christian groups, I speak to Buddhist groups. I speak to I speak to people that are just totally non-believers. But we all can connect with that that message of kindness. Um, so So the kindness center just continues to be a vehicle for for um, creating these events, sharing the message, and um, and we have other people that get involved with those events, and it's it's been amazing, absolutely amazing.
3: And we know that in medicine, we've we've done work on compassion, we've done work on kindness, we've seen actual brain cha- changes in brain physiology, we've seen um, changes in the way that the heart works. So we know that actually being kind to other people comes back to benefit us positively. This is something that's become more mainstream as, as we've understood it. But it's funny that this is something that all of the major religions and spiritual traditions have been talking about for thousands of years, and medicine's just finally catching up.
1: Absolutely. and it, I mean, it is so simple. I, I mean, it, it is it, and people, how can you possibly make a living in kindness? you know, because it's it's the most basic thing. but sadly, it's it's a thing that's missing from the world, I mean, so often. I mean, don't get me wrong, I believe there's far more good out there. Um, unfortunately, the media shows us a lot of the ugliness in the world. Um, but there is a tremendous amount of unkindness happening. And I believe that unhappiness is, for the most part, the cause of, of the unkindness in the world. When, when we're not happy with who we are, if we don't love ourselves first, in that not in an egotistical way but in a spiritual sense, I mean, it's very difficult to be kind to, to others. Um, so kindness toward yourself is, is where it all begins. Um, it's, so many spiritual teachers have told us over the years that, that world peace, it must develop out of inner peace. It starts with you. Um, But as you said, it's, I mean, science is showing. I mean, an act of kindness towards someone, if you perform an act of kindness, your level of serotonin goes up. It gets more interesting because if not only does your serotonin go up, but, but the person on the other end, their level of serotonin goes up as well. But then someone just observing the act of kindness, just the observer witnessing a kind act. Their level of serotonin goes up as well, so it's it's that simple. But at the same time, it is that incredibly powerful. The way that I typically define kindness is that it's it is love in action. Um, You know, love is that big, you know, warm and fuzzy word that people think about romantic love. You think about family, you know, but I'm speaking about a uh, just a all encompassing just that divine spirit of love and and whenever you perform an act of kindness you are essentially performing an act of of love and one of the things i wanted to do in in my first book am i being kind is to um is to explain what a kind heart really looks like and and i and i came up with nine what i call nine elements of a kind heart um very briefly to break them down they are to be attentive authentic charitable, compassionate, courageous, enthusiastic, grateful, inspirational, and patient. I can't believe I just remembered all nine of them. I think that was nine. Um, but, but each one in the book explains how that really creates a, a kind life. And it's just like that first one, to be attentive. Um, the first key to kindness that I talk about in the book is, is awareness. And we're living in a time where our awareness is being stripped away. Um, by technology. I mean, you see, wherever people are, I mean, their heads are down. We're always staring at our iPads, our iPhones, or some electronic device. Now, I love my iPhone. It's, it's amazing. However, we have, to, we have to open our hearts, open our eyes, and, and look around and recognize there are opportunities to be kind everywhere. And just, just the other day, I uh, was at an outdoor farmer's market, and there was a big pizza stand, and and I was just hanging out, leaning against the wall, talking to my wife, and, and a, a little boy and his mom walked up to the pizza stand, and, and she said, um, said, how much is a slice of pizza? And he told her, and, and she said, oh, but do you take credit cards? And the man said, no, we, we don't take credit cards. I'm so sorry. Well, I heard that. And... The first thing that I wanted to do, of course, was walk over and buy that piece of pizza. And I did. And it was just a a simple, you know, $4 act of kindness. But the thing that I find is that that we're we're so blind in life now because of our technology and our busyness. We're impatient. We're just rushing, rushing, rushing. And we're missing all of these little beautiful moments that are unfolding and an opportunity to touch someone's life. And she was almost in tears. And it, it's, it's just—it's okay. It's just a piece of pizza. All I want is for you just to pass it on in some way. Doesn't doesn't mean financially. Just a kind word, you know, compliment, open a door for someone, and uh, and, and the universe sees it as as you know, we're even. Um, but but yeah, defining kindness—it um, is so much more than than just just a, a word. Um, it is a it is a way of of being and when you are thinking speaking and acting in kinder ways and being kind to yourself others in this planet um i can i can guarantee Uh, my life comes with a with a 100 my my book my book comes with a 100 percent life back guarantee i always say if it doesn't change your life you can have your old life back no questions asked now that's a that's a good deal right
3: it's not always easy to be kind i mean some of the stories that you've talked about involved hanging out with people on the streets who maybe they don't smell very good, or they're secondhand smokers, or you know maybe you feel a little threatened because some of them are a little angry or dangerous. How do you push through that?
1: I mean, yeah, I, I know what you're saying. I mean, I, I work with a lot of homeless people. I'm um, doing these events, um, but I I rarely run into people that that reject what I'm trying to offer. And it, it's for me it's all about energy. And and when we do these large random acts of kindness events and if we're out there on the streets approaching people, doing things, I talk to everybody first before we head out there and I say, listen, it's all about the energy that you're putting out that's coming, you know, from your thoughts, you know, radiating out of radiating out of your own heart. Um, because when I approach people, if I walk up to someone and go, um, hey, yeah, it was just out and I don't know, I thought I'd like to just be kind to you. Here's a free cup of coffee or, you know, they're, you know, people are swinging at you or grabbing for their mace, right? (laughs) You know, you come across so just really weird. So you have to walk up to people and, and you've got to have enthusiasm. You've got to have passion in your voice. You've got to have positive energy. You've got to radiate that positivity, that love, that kindness, that compassion. And when you do that people feel it and people are so hungry for this in the world that they immediately perk up and they're like okay i want more what's going on here now that's not to say i mean from time to time there is going to be a person that will say no get away from me i don't want what you're selling because we live in a world where nothing's for free right and when i'm out there doing things for people they're like this is you know this got to be too good to be true and it's like, no, really, just we're just out to promote this message of kindness, and all we want from you is to pass it on, just just pass it on to to someone else. Um, although I did have a man in, in New York City, I was doing the uh, the 24 hours of kindness. It was so funny in Times Square. He's got his whole family and all these kids, himself, his wife, and I. And they're at an ice cream truck. So I run up to the ice cream truck and i tell the driver i said hey i want to i want to buy ice cream for this entire family and i i gave him some money and the the, the family is like they're all excited and everything and and, and the dad was this big kind of tough guy and he's like he's like what are you what's this all about what are you doing i said no i'm just i just you know want to make you happy I just want to buy you some free ice cream and he was still like didn't get it i said i tell you what all you all you got to do make it even i said just give me a hug man just just hug me and we'll call it good and he, he, he goes, I ain't hugging you, man. And he grabs his wife. He throws his wife at me. He says, hug her instead. <laughs> so funny things happen. Um, it's always interesting. He didn't hug me, but he did take the free ice cream. You know, he, was, he was cool with that. So it's, it's always an adventure. And uh, it's, yeah, it's just, a, I, I don't know. I've just got the, world, the world's best gig. I don't feel like I have a job. I just am so blessed um, to, to do what I do every day.
3: How has this all impacted your son?
1: My son is uh, an amazing young man. A very—he's become a, a, a deep thinker, very philosophical. He's—he's he's not your typical 22-year-old that is, you know, drinking, partying, doing crazy stuff. I mean, he's—he's he's got some—he's you know, got some great friends, and that makes a, a big difference. Um, but yeah, he's just—I I don't know if I can take credit for it. Because I, I've, I've really tried to um, you know, go by that, that philosophy of what Gandhi said, my life is my message. So I don't have to tell my son every day, be kind, do this, do that. I don't want to walk that path. Because anytime you tell a kid to do something, they want to do the complete opposite anyway. <laughs> so I just, I just live my life, and I hope that he'll be watching and, um, you know, and and mirror some of the things that I'm trying to put out there. And he does. He's a beautiful, beautiful soul. Yeah, I love him so much.
3: And how about that wife of yours, who's <laughs> <laughs> encouraging you to do the crazy kindness thing?
1: I, I I couldn't do this without her. I mean, when when I told everyone that I was going to close down um, the photography studio, which, by the way, was the, the business was half hers. I mean, she was an award-winning photographer for 16 years, and I. You know, I had my epiphany um, that that kindness was the secret to happiness, and I said, "Honey, I want to I want to close down the studio." I said, "I want to go out and and teach kindness," and she just said, "I can see you doing that. Let's do it." it I mean, it, it was incredible. I mean, just like that. And there have been um, major obstacles. I mean, we. It's not like we uh, we we closed the business, but we didn't have. Uh, a surplus of money or, you know, to, to start this whole thing. It was on faith. And uh, and it's it's been incredible how she just, um, every day, no matter what, I mean, if there were times that, I mean, and there were, there were times that we literally could not put food on the table in the you know the first couple of years of doing this. And I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I said, we, we've got to do something different. Maybe I should go back to photography. Maybe I get a job. I don't know. And she just looked at me. She had tears in her eyes, and she was very emotional. She said, you will never give this up. The world needs this more than ever. And I don't care how many days we go without groceries. The world needs this, and you will never stop. So that's the kind of love and support that I get every single day. I mean, my wife is, I mean, she's like my best friend, and, uh, and we just, and when we work together, too. I mean, she's, she's a huge part of this, so I'm very blessed.
3: People can read about the profile you've done, the Q&A, with Sophie Nelson in, in the wellness issue of Maine Magazine. So I encourage anyone who's listening to do that. How else can they find out about you?
1: Uh, well, um, the the uh, the website uh, for the Kindness Center, of course, is thekindnesscenter.com, um, which is also uh, the same site as uh, michaeljchase.com. Uh, we also have a, a very large Facebook community, and uh, it's been wonderful. The, the people there are just doing Beautiful things um, trying to promote the message and helping me to to share you know kind acts all over the world so we always love people to join that facebook page too and, and share what they're doing and uh, and inspire us
3: When does your next book come out
1: the new book uh it comes out this may and uh and it's very different than um than the, the original book the, the The first book was very much as a, a self help type of book and this one it has that same tone of uh, you know my goal was to help people and to and to definitely transform as many lives as possible with the um, with a new book. But this one is is really um, very unique. it's uh, It's a spiritual journey with uh, with my insanely crazy yet unconditionally loving dog. Um, we are so excited about this. It's, uh, it's already had a, a, lot of, um, a lot of reviews by some, some other authors, and uh, so, yeah, we're expecting some great things from that this spring. The title is? The Radical Practice of Loving Everyone, a Four-Legged Approach to Enlightenment. We've been speaking with
3: Michael J. Chase, who is the best-selling author of Am I Being Kind and also founder of the Kindness Center and also husband and father. We're very fortunate that you've spent this time this morning with us um, talking about kindness.
1: I'm so grateful for your time. Thank you so much.
0: We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, The Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit TheBodyArchitect.com or call 207 774 2196 and get started with the Body Architect today. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendonitis, muscle and ligament tears, instability, and in arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207 781 9077.
3: As a physician, I've had the opportunity and privilege to spend time with people who have dealt with some very significant issues in their lives. Um, grief, death, loss, these are things that come up often in conversation. And, of course, this is a conversation between a physician and a patient. It's not always a conversation that makes it out into the light of day, and yet I think it's one that's very important to have. So I am honored and humbled by the courage that Sandra Fisher has has exhibited by coming into the studio today to talk about a very difficult subject that I think is one that we all need to think about. Thanks for coming in and being with me today.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me.
3: And next to Sandra, and I'm going to call you Sandy, okay. um, we have our friend Leanne, who um, works with Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design, and is was a friend of your son Scott. And Scott's not with us anymore.
2: No, he's not.
3: No. And this is the, this is the difficult topic. I think I think this is the most difficult topic that we've ever addressed, and that is when a person takes their own life and how this comes to happen and how it impacts the people around him or her.
2: Yes, it is. Um, Scott took his life almost eight years ago and it's still not easy. Um, It will never will be.
3: He was. He had just finished school at Deering.
2: Yes, he had graduated in 2005, and he uh, was at um, Rensselaer Polytech Institute in Troy, New York. He'd been there for three weeks. Um, he had had to go earlier than the other kids. He was. He had a full Navy ROTC scholarship, and he had to go for the like boot camp for the first week. And, he uh, he was struggling. He, he told us before he went that he thought he might be depressed. We immediately took him to see a psychiatrist. Um, they The psychiatrist wasn't sure whether it was just because of all the changes in his life that he was um, depressed, but he thought he should put him on medication and told them to see a doctor as soon as he got to school to and um, so we did. He did exactly that. Um, saw the medical doctor and saw our counselor, psychologist while he was there and he was struggling um, and he, uh, he had an allergic reaction to the medication and I told him to go to the emergency room He did. They took him off the medication, and they sent him home. Sent him back, not home, which they should have sent him home. They sent him back to school. And a week later, he took his life. It happened very quickly. It wasn't like he had been dealing with a mental illness for a long period of time, or depression even for a long period of time. It happened very quickly. And people need to be aware of that, that it can happen very quickly. And because I didn't know anything about suicide or suicide prevention, I didn't realize that he was screaming for help. And even to the psychologist, after we got the records from her, I was really angry because she should have known. He... He tried every way possible to tell her without coming right out and telling her. And I, after taking the training, I have taken quite a few trainings on suicide prevention. I've read everything there is to read about depression. and, And now I know. The warning signs were all there, plain as day. And it just, everyone should, be educated about it and so that they, you'll know.
3: What were some of the specific stressors that Scott was um, encountering?
2: Um, I think one of the biggest ones was homesickness. Scott, he loved his life. He really did. I mean, he, he had some of the best friends that Anybody could ask for. His friends are all still a part of our lives. They invite us to their weddings, they come and visit us. Um, he had a wonderful girlfriend who was still a part of our lives. And um, he loved his family. He, he just, he, he seemed to have it all. He really did. And I don't think that he wanted to go away to school, and I tried to talk him out of going, but he also had a lot of pride.
3: Do you think that part of this pride had something to do with being a man?
2: Yeah, probably. But he—he he was that—he was just that kind of kid. He—he he was very, very intelligent, and he—he um, he didn't think that he was intelligent as he really was. Although I think. At the end, he was starting to realize, and I think that also had something to do with it. And, you know, the reading that I've done says a lot of very intelligent people take their lives.
3: And why is that?
2: I think because <clears throat> the world sometimes, it, or even their intelligence, becomes overwhelming for them. He always used to say to me, Mom, I'm not as smart as you think I am. And, and I would say, Scott, you, you are really smart. And, it, and he wasn't a vain kid, or he didn't need recognition for anything. But he was 15th in his class at Daring, and that was without working really hard. He, it, he just was smart.
3: We'll return to our interview in a minute, but first... Let's take some time to explore the connection between health and wealth, something that I firmly believe in and have tried to promote on this show. Joining us is my friend and personal financial advisor, Tom Shepard.
5: The first tool we used to get what we wanted was to cry. The first thing we used to make others feel good was to smile. Born into a world of complete dependence, we eventually find our voice and begin to talk about independence. Over time, we learn to do for ourselves while the support gets slowly taken away. Or, so we think. I have always been struck by the disconnect of a life that is benchmarked against time instead of experience. Our currency is not the time that goes by never to return, but instead the relationships, connections, skills, money, resources, and knowledge that builds a foundation underneath us that can't be destroyed. We may be learning to live on our own, but it should never be the goal of living alone. So if you need something, cry out. And if you have something to give, let the world know with a, with a smile. You may have many ways to trade for more value in the world, but if you're having trouble seeing it, then send us an email to info at shepherdfinancialmaine.com. Securities offered through LPL Financial,
0: member FINRA SIPC. Investment advice offered through Flagship Harbor Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Flagship Harbor Advisors and Shepherd Financial are separate entities from LPL Financial. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled, you need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be.
3: Think that kids feel a pressure to live up to some unattainable standards?
2: Absolutely. I um, I think our schools put way too much pressure on them to go to college. The um, some of them are not ready to go to college, and some of them are never going to be ready to go to college college isn't for everybody and in this world today it's oh if you don't have a college education forget it you're not going to go anywhere well that's not true and kids need to know that whatever choice they make it has to be the choice that's going to make them happy not anybody else happy that's they've got to make the choice that's going to make them happy Not that I think that Scott would have never gone to college, but I I don't think that Scott, especially Scott should not have gone away to college. And Scott was accepted to every college he applied to, and the reason he chose to go there was because he wanted, he was going into aeronautic engineering, and they they were the best school for it. But Scott could have been anything he wanted, and could have gone anywhere he wanted and still become anything he wanted to become.
3: Is it possible that we put too much value on the academic intelligence of our children and maybe miss out on the emotional intelligence of our children and nurturing that and growing that?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. We had all of that in our lives like we never pressured scott as far as school went scott was the one who pressured himself if scott did not do well scott was very hard on himself for it. not that i can ever remember him not doing well but i mean he we never had to say to scott did you do your homework or uh, it just wasn't that way scott it was he was hard on himself and we were the four of the there's my husband myself and my daughter and we're originally from Rhode Island. We've been here for over 20 years. And all of our family is in Massachusetts and Rhode Island. So it's always just been the four of us. So we were very close, the four of us. We all had a lot of love for each other. And so he had all of that in his life. But it's the pressure of school and society telling them, this is what you have to do. and not thinking about their emotional and is this what's good for them emotionally, and which is why... And his friends, so many of them, came to me afterwards and said, you know, Mrs. Fisher, everybody told us it was going to be the best time of our lives when we went to college. And they'd all been together since kindergarten. And all of a sudden, they were all alone in this big place and didn't know anybody. And we don't prepare them for that. And it's all preparing them for the education. This you gotta do well and you got and it's not you gotta prepare them emotionally for this. And I I did. I worked with a guidance counselor during high school to develop a transition program for the high school seniors to prepare them for anything, no matter what they chose to do but for the transition after they graduated from high school, and to let them know it was okay not to go to college. It was okay to do whatever it was you wanted to do. If you decided you weren't ready yet and you were going to get a job, that's fine, but prepare them for what that transition would be like as well. And, and then we worked with Maine Youth Suicide Prevention Program to develop a formal program, which we did develop and um, but um, since NAMI has taken over that grant and works with that and I have been out of the loop so I really don't have any information on what is happening with that program right now
3: And NAMI is?
2: National Alliance of Mental Illness
3: So if people wanted to find out information about the suicide prevention program then they could um, find that information from that organization yes
2: and all of the prevention programs suicide prevention programs um, they do all the trainings for so I can't stress enough how important it is that people do be educated because you also can't rely if you if your child is struggling and you are you get them help you cannot be sure that that physician or that psychologist or counselor is educated about suicide prevention because that's not always the case as it was not the case with the psychologist my son was seeing. I have to believe that because otherwise she would have done something. One of the most important things is if you think someone is suicidal you have to ask the question and it's a very difficult question to ask but you have to ask it and you have to come right out and ask. You can't ask someone if they're thinking about hurting themselves, because to someone who is suicidal, they don't think of it as hurting themselves. And so you have to come right out and ask the question, are you thinking about killing yourself or taking your life? Or, and because a lot of times, they're just waiting for somebody to ask that question.
3: Well. I encourage anybody who's listening to do whatever is necessary. Look into the National Association, National Alliance of for Mental Illness, mental illness um, or the Suicide Prevention Program, or talk to your doctor, push through, talk to a psychiatrist, talk to a psychologist, um, whatever is necessary to get the help that your child or anyone around you that is contemplating suicide needs. It's very, very important, and... We've been um, blessed to have you in the studio talking with us about this very difficult subject um, and also blessed to have sitting next to you, who hasn't said a word, but <laughs> offering her um, support to you, yes. Scott's friend, Leanne we met, who works here at Maine Magazine, Maine Home Design. So thank you for joining us today, Sandra Fisher, and um, I really wish you all the, all the
2: best. Thank you. Thank you.
3: You've been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, show number 79, Emotional Intelligence. Our guests have included author and founder of The Kindness Center, Michael Chase, and Sandra Fisher, suicide prevention advocate and mother. For more information on our guests, visit doctorlisa.org. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's shows, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Dr. Lisa Facebook page. You can also follow me on Twitter and Pinterest, D-O-C-T-O-R Lisa, and read my take on health and well-being on the Bountiful blog, -blog bountiful-blog.org. We love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. I'm privileged that our sponsors enable me to bring the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, hoping that you have found our show on emotional intelligence, enlightening and beneficial. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you embrace your bountiful life.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Main Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at Remax Heritage, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Booth, Maine, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect. The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine at 75 Market Street in Portland, Maine. Our executive producers, are Kevin Thomas and Dr. Lisa Belial. Audio production and original music by John C. McCain. Our assistant producer is Courtney Taberge. Summaries of all our past shows can be found at doctorlisa.org. Become a subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial on iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.